This podcast is sponsored by Oxford Smart Activate, a newly launched curriculum service for Key Stage 3 Science, published by Oxford University Press. Oxford Smart Activate gives you an evidence-based curriculum and connects it with resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, powered by Caboodle, enabling you to provide a personalised and adaptive pathway for each of your students. Inspiring the next generation of scientists, that's smart. Hello and welcome to the TES podcast. I'm Senior Editor Simon Locke and today I'll be asking whether the development of learner identity could hold the key to creating more successful science lessons. Supporting young people as they begin to engage with and understand a subject is one of the most rewarding parts of being a teacher. The way students form their own identity as learners, it is argued, can have a profound impact on attainment and future prospects. But when it comes to science, with a curriculum full of abstract topics and historically lacking in diverse representation, how can teachers ensure that all students form a real connection to the subject? In this episode, I'll be speaking with two educators who, through encouraging the development of learner identity, have made their science curriculum something that students from all backgrounds can get excited about. First, I meet Genevieve Bent. Genevieve is Assistant Principal and former Head of Science who has a particular interest in diversity and equity within STEM subjects. She is founder of Young, Gifted and STEM, an initiative designed to improve the experience and engagement of black and ethnic minority young people with STEM subjects. Hi Genevieve, thanks for joining me on the podcast this afternoon. It's um, a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Hi Simon, Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm really pleased to be here. I really appreciate being part of this podcast. Good, good, good. How things with you at the moment? Busy, busy time of year? It is a busy time of year. We're slap bang in the middle of um, GCSEs at the moment and obviously A-level exams. So yeah, it's quite busy, um, but usual summer. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, well, thank you very much for squeezing us in. Um, I will not keep you too long, hopefully. I'll um, I'll get cracking with the questions in that case. Um, so, yeah, we, we're here to talk um, about learner identity and the context of sort of science lessons and the curriculum. But I wanted to start by just sort of clarifying or getting your getting your definition, if you like, of what exactly we mean when we talk about learner identity. Um, I mean, we, we identity comes into quite a few um, areas when it comes to learning now, but essentially I would define it and research would define it as the process of becoming a learner and being a learner and, and sort of picking up the views and own opinions about how an individual learns and also how an, an individual feels about themselves as a learner and how that contributes to the learning process, I'd say. Okay, great. And what are the benefits that come from modeling a sort of curriculum where that learner identity is really considered and and, and at the forefront of how it's constructed? It's so it's a, it's a big thing really. Um, and sort of developing the attitudes and habits as a, as someone who is learning is really important because it influences the learning process. It influences how 
students see themselves. It influences how they engage with learning. And so um, fostering this idea of identity and learner identity is really key. Um, and, and research emerging shows it's it's key to building um, a, a student's ability to persevere, to be resilient, to persist with challenge. And also when challenges do come or setbacks come, that children are able to overcome those challenges because of the positive learner identity that they've built within themselves. And so um, because, I guess building a learner identity and, and building a curriculum around that is becomes really important in how we allow students to see themselves. And particularly within the STEM um, subjects, STEM identity is something that has come out of research over the last few years and um, allowing a student to foster their own idea of what identity means and how they see themselves within the science curriculum has become more and more important research has shown um, to to whether a student really engages with STEM subjects and whether they can see themselves contributing to STEM and science over time. Okay, that's interesting. So what sort of things would um, would help create a positive learner identity then? So I guess a key attribute of of creating a, a positive learner identity is having children um, have this sense of empowerment so fostering this whole sense of empowerment and agency in young learners it really allows them to take a leadership role um you know within their learning and within their own development and so so over time they are able to take i guess responsibility and accountability for how they see themselves and really building themselves up to be I guess you know what they would what they would we would see as or perceive as a positive learner identity. So, um, I guess there's quite a few different different things that, that different ways that teachers can do that. I'm just going to go back to the question again. Can you re remind me of the question again? Of course. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Just around um, you mentioned creating a positive learner identity and um and how that's sort of comes about are there oh, what sort of things could, could make you know turn a learner into someone who viewed themselves as being a you know a real positive having a strong learner identity i guess that yeah sense? i guess yeah that does make sense um so i guess it's about building opportunities within the classroom so Building opportunities for dialogue is a really important way of building posit a positive learner identity in children. So allowing students to not just be part of a dialogue or speaking, but actually observing what that looks like and then being able to participate in that. Um, it's about utilizing resources in order to build engagement with students, things that are that students can connect with and, and therefore see themselves as um, a, a, a positive learner. Um, a purposeful learner. It's about having students being able to interact with other students that are going to um, raise their, I guess, optimism and confidence within the subject. So someone who is going to become, be their expert to allow them to build their own expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and giving students lots of opportunity to reflect within teaching, you know, when we when we start off our teaching career, reflective practice is a really important part of our career. And I believe that's the case for children as well, giving students time to reflect and to um, absorb 
and to engage with whatever it is that they've learned allows them to again build upon what the how they see themselves as a learner within the classroom yeah that's interesting to hear like reflective practice talked about in the context of students and and not teachers that's yeah that's interesting you don't hear that quite so much but um you talked about research showing that um this is a particular issue in in or or something that has shown to be um considerable in stem subjects can you talk yeah. to us a little bit more about that what why do you think is learner identity so key for science and stem in particular yeah um well we know that there's been a shortage within the stem workforce for quite some years now and that shortage just continues to grow um year upon year and the uptake of of stem subjects particularly within key groups such as women or um ethnic minorities etc we see the the gap of that continuing to increase and in 2018 um, a research body which is which is called the Centre for the Advancement of Informal Science Education. Um, they did some research which sort of defined what a STEM identity is. Um, and so for anyone who isn't familiar with that, a STEM identity is about is is pretty similar and mirrors what a learner identity is about. So it's someone who can think about themselves as um, a science student or a science learner, and then is able to develop an identity as someone who can see themselves in science, can see themselves contributing to science, or even at the very least can see themselves using science in everyday life. And so um, STEM identities as research has become more, um, more widespread, I guess, I guess I'd say, um, because STEM identities is very, has, been seen to be quite closely linked with role models or lack of role models um, and a lack of diversity and therefore um, STEM identity is, is quite positive within particular groups and, and very much the opposite within other groups. Um, so the research has shown that so far, I mean it's, it's still in its early days, but so far that the use of role models and the use of diversifying the curriculum, diversifying classrooms um, has a positive effect on a, a student or young person's ability to see themselves within STEM and to build a positive STEM identity. That's interesting. Okay, so it's, it's part of it is kind of feeling like you've got a sense of belonging in that space and in that subject exactly. and in that world, right? Yeah, okay, that's brilliant. Um, exactly. So. In the context of, say, a science lesson, then how can teachers, um, bearing in mind what you've just talked about, how can teachers help to build that learner identity and and make fee people feel like they've got a place in that in in science? Yeah, um, this is something that I have thought a lot about over the last couple of years, and I did uh, I did a postgrad on looking at how um, role models impacted and, and looked at different factors that impacted key groups in or underrepresented groups should I say within STEM and within science and one of the parts that came out of my research and also the research that I've seen and that I've read and that I've become more familiar with is is talks a lot about how they how they portray science to be so whether it's just for a particular group so homogenous group um, and we know that 
there's been a lack of representation over time in science and STEM fields, they tend to consist of white men. Um, and the curriculum reflects that. But actually, there are there's so much more that we can do to try and um, showcase to students that, you know, there are different groups of in STEM, there's different groups of in the science curriculum, there's different contributions that have been made over time. There's people for them to look up to that have, you know, similar backgrounds, similar stories to themselves that actually they can aspire to be and people that have made successful contributions to science and STEM. And those are people that they, you know, can put as, um, as their own aspirations. So one thing that I would, that I would advocate for, and, and I did a, a recent sort of article about how I diversified the curriculum recent, recently myself, um, with my team, um, you know, spending time and auditing curriculum and making sure that there is, there is, you know, there are role models that are that students can really relate to. Um, even if we teach one we teach large groups of the same um of students from the same sort of backgrounds, diversification and diversifying does really benefit everybody. It benefits all stakeholders. And then a second one would be looking at um how we really well there's there's a few things, but looking at I guess, themes of diversity and inclusion within enrichment and within extracurricular as well. So looking at the curriculum is one part, but also giving opportunities for students to, to um, explore their, their learner identity and explore what that means and what that could look like over time um, outside of the curriculum. So opening up careers guidance, broadening careers guidance, giving them experiences to see science and, and STEM outside of the classroom and building up their sense of science capital, um, which is a, a phenomenon that came out of research by Dr. Louise Archer some years ago. So big, enriching the lives of students, um, not just in the classroom, but outside of the classroom and really trying to foster that that sense of identity within the classroom. Brilliant. Okay. And I've said quite a lot there. No, that is, that is, I think that's really sort of summed it up really nicely, actually. Um, I guess in the, thinking about how learners kind of engage and really grasp a subject like science, as well as feeling like they've got a place, is there an issue with sort of some of the topics are just so abstract and, you know, you yeah. look at sort of atoms and cells or like planets and subject for 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 students going into like year seven perhaps looking at these subjects in depth for the first time is that a problem for teachers trying to make the to topic feel relevant to your average kind of student who might not uh who's, who's probably never had a looked at a telescope or or dealt with a bunsen burner before absolutely yeah i mean Science is probably one of the most abstract topics um, or, or area, subject areas within the curriculum. Um, and it can be hard, particularly for the, like you said, those year sevens who may not have had very much experience of science anyway. Um, but I guess when it comes to abstract topics in particular, so things like atoms or cells, et cetera, modeling is so key. And any experienced practitioner or, or even new practitioners will, will see the benefits of modeling and how that really does help to sort of consolidate and solidify topics within a student's mind. So for example, 
looking at cells. Cells is really abstract. We know that they make up the body. We know that they make up living organisms, but actually just sticking an animal and plant cell diagram in front of students um, is not particularly helpful to get them to really understand or show understanding the abstract topic. So modeling is where that comes in, looking at... um, Looking at looking at cells under the microscope, for example, can get those basic understanding of of concepts of cells before moving on to what are more abstract parts of the curriculum. So modeling is a, is essential when it comes to um you know particular area cells atoms, uh, because there are the topics like space. We know that we we sort sort of see that we're more averse in that, but um yeah abstract topics definitely rely on the teacher's ability to model and to be able to link that to wider context um, and allow them to make sort of meaningful links between, I don't know, whatever's going on outside to whatever it is that they're learning in the classroom. So wider context and modeling, I would say, are um, are really important if students are going to build positive learner identities over time. Of course, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned um, that you know the the sort of science space uh, as we know it like actual scientists um yeah. is kind of unfortunately dominated by white men still mm. but in terms of sort of students going in and um studying science to a you know higher education level or going into careers in science perhaps how is there a problem there with stem as well if it, not necessarily talking about you know scientists as such, but people following those careers or studying it further, is it difficult to student for students to sort of grasp that, the idea of that? Yeah. So do you mean grasping the idea of actually pursuing a, a career in science themselves or? Yeah. That sort of seeing a tangible career path for them yeah. when they're yeah. dealing with such abstract subjects and perhaps the space of science is dominated by one particular sort of, um, demographic group yeah I think I think so I think it's it's been an issue for a long time um we look at the girls in science sort of I don't want to say movement but the girls in science I guess focus um and it's been a continued focus of trying to increase numbers of of girls into science subjects or science careers um so that yeah there has I would say that there has been an issue where with students actually being able to see well what does science actually offer them um I, I guess historically we think of a scientist as the crazy-haired scientist that looks a little bit like Einstein and wearing a lab coat when actually um with proper time and exploration and I know that's hard because we think of you know we know that teachers are under um lots of time constraints but with top proper time to be able to explore what careers actually look like they realize that actually there's so much more to a science career they could be working um in the civil service they could be working yes traditionally in space they could be working I don't know in food science there's so many options that students don't necessarily get um time to explore or 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 even spoken to about so careers guidance is something that I spoke about recently is really important when if it comes if it comes down to inspiring students into careers we need to be able to there needs to be proper time to be able to talk about what science can do for us for someone and also about you know the skills that they learn doing a science-based 
um, course of study, whether it's a degree or, you know, further education and apprenticeship, how, how much, do, how many doors that can open for them. Um, and traditionally the lack of role models has always been an issue too. And I'm really lucky to be able to work in a team where, um, we are very diverse. And so students have, you know, have spoken to us about how, um, they have used that as sort of, they've used that as sort of inspiration to be able to to want to follow science a little bit more or to see, you know, to change their aspirations a little bit. Um, but I think that the use of, the use of role models sort of entwined with careers, whether that's careers fairs, whether that is getting um, speakers in to speak to students about from different um, backgrounds um, and different career paths that is really important because students have just struggled to see what science can do for them. And does that all sort of tie back into this idea of um, in better engaging students with the subject, if not necessarily giving them careers guidance when they're coming to the end of their time at school, but yeah. actually showing them those careers right from the start, saying, this, you know, this is a particular, this is a path that could work for you as well, like even at the start of their science learning, I guess, and making them really sort of engaged, I guess, yeah. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. It shouldn't be something that's left to year 11 or, um, when they're making their final choices for next year for sixth form. And it shouldn't be something that is thought about at year 12 and year 13 only. It should be something that is embedded into, you know, a, a, a what's the word I'm looking for? A, an effective careers curriculum is something that happens over time, isn't it? It's not just a one-off conversation of students. It's about giving them opportunities all the way through. So that that can take the form of, you know, enrichment visits or educational visits to, I don't know, wherever it is where they're going to meet people who work in science. I don't want to use the Science Museum as an example because, um, yeah, it's the Science Museum. But yeah, opportunities to really explore what science looks like outside of the classroom, to meet people who have who are scientists, to meet people that they can, um, I don't know, have conversations with, relate to um, in particular, and really just opening up um, conversations about that and allowing students to really explore that is really important all the way through, agreed. Definitely, brilliant. Genevieve, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. That has been really useful. Next, I meet Martin Saunders, Key Stage 3 lead for the Science Department at Chichester High School. Over the past year, Martin has been working with the Oxford University Press, trialling a new science curriculum with his Year 7 and 8 classes. Hi, Martin. Thanks for joining us on the TES podcast this afternoon. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you for having me. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. And you're you're in the midst of um, exam madness, I hear, or hopefully not too much madness, but exam period nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you can imagine, there's a lot of uh, anxious anxious students, but um, yeah, we're getting there slowly. Brilliant stuff. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, tell us about your um, the, the the science curriculum you've been trialling with your year seven and eights. Um, I understand yeah. you're doing something a little bit different. We are. So it was a scheme. So they developed, Oxford University Press developed a research scheme um, on from metacognition research. And it kind of tied in nicely to our own school pedagogical model, which is also steeped in metacognition research. And so I was given this and asked, can you run it with 
your Key Stage 3 classes. Um, and I'm the Key Stage 3 lead here at the school. Um, and so it made sense. They gave me a little bit of freedom to try and experiment with things. And um, what, result, what it resulted in was a lot of creativity, I would say, is the main thing and engagement from me in the way I had to tackle it. So I think a lot of the time it's very easy in teaching to end up getting into a routine. Um, in science, some of the, like for a physics lesson, might be a lot of mass based. You get into a routine, teach things sometimes the same way. And what it forced me to do was look at these things and go, well, actually, I've got a bit of flexibility here to be, you know, to do it how I want to do it, be a bit more engaging. And once I started enjoying it, they also started, the kids started loving it and engaging. And it just, creativity went through the roof from me and from the students involved. Brilliant. Yeah, you can sort of, when a teacher's enjoying themselves, you know, it's, students can't help but, uh, but feed off that. Um, yeah, exactly. How is it, how is it compared to curriculums you've taught before then? You talked about the creativity. What else is different to, to what you've done before? I think it allowed for more progress. So there was a lot more, uh, okay, this is a very strange thing to say. There was more structure, but less structure, if that makes sense. Um, previously when I taught the national curriculum, it was sort of, it was regimented, but in some ways I would look at it as a science teacher and go, well, it's not necessarily geared in the right direction or the, the most conducive way to learn. Whereas the metacognition research meant suddenly someone had actually gone and looked at, well, how do people learn? What is the best way to do it? And suddenly we were geared in another direction. Um, but I was allowed a bit of freedom in the sense that they gave me the eight pillars for metacognition and they said, you teach whatever you, however you, this is the content you teach this using these eight pillars. And then that gave me, like I say, again, it comes back to, I could do what I wanted and be free and flowing with it. And it, it essentially made it very sort of drudgy, a little bit, even say boring to suddenly I had these whiz bang lessons where, you know, today we're going to, everything that you expect in a science lesson, when you think of a science lesson, you think of things going pop, bang, some things are a little bit gross, you know, it suddenly became that and I was enjoying it and the kids were enjoying it. Brilliant. So traditionally with the science curriculum, what are some of the barriers do you think that, that get in the way of students really getting to grips with it? You, you talked about those engaging like whiz bang moments, yeah. like what, what, why did people consider science perhaps more of a sort of dry um, academic subject? What, what are the barriers? I think that a lot of it's really abstract. Um, so I know for me personally, I teach all three and the chemistry side of it is something where I go, because I can't see it. I can't see an atom in my head. It takes me a while to work around it. Um, whereas I'm, I'm a physics specialist. So I, cause I can see like, if I push this, it's going to move. And even biology, you can feel it. If you're talking about human biology, you can see it in the world around you. I think a lot of that is why science can sometimes be a bit of a, an alien concept. Um, the other thing as well is there's certain skills that the, the students need. So to be good at physics, it helps if you're really good at maths and we know that maths is a sticking point, you know, so you need to build up some basic skills from that. And also they don't, the amount of times I hear, and probably every teacher in the country has heard this is when am I going to use this? And the only answer I've really got for them is, well, your GCC exams, which sometimes feels like to them and to me, a bit of a naff definition, like a bit of a naff justification. And what it leads to is kind of this vicious cycle of disengagement and overall, over time, the teacher can get caught in the drudge of teaching natural quick and the same things and the kids also go into that it's like a, a bad feedback loop um and what this helped me overcome was because i i had the flexibility and the freedom and i'm lucky to be in a school that you know also allows me that flexibility freedom to do everything i needed to do with it so i was allowed to be creative and do that 
And suddenly it went from, you know, when am I going to use this to when can I use this? And they almost start tying into learner identities. They start finding those answers themselves. And once you've sort of got them in a routine of it, it becomes like, I sort of sit back and let them do what they need to do and learn. And it was, it was working. Yeah. Okay, cool. You, yeah. You mentioned there, um, the learner identity element and, and that's kind of what we wanted to focus on today. So how have you sort of developed that focus and, um, and really sort of brought that learner identity out through your lessons? So it kind of became a lot of it for me when I thought about it was them taking ownership. So again, like, like it's very easy for me as a teacher to get a routine of you stand at the front, here are the concepts, there's a worksheet and you sort of, um, you lead them to what they need to do and you lead it very, very strictly and stringently instructed. Whereas actually for this one, it almost flipped on its head and it became a bit like, I'd liken it to, if I have a conversation with someone, so like the other day I was talking to my dad and he asked me a question about atoms and it became, it went from being a, I'm going to teach you about atoms to here's a conversation organically. And he was asking questions because he wanted to know and developing the learner identity through use of things, even simple things that every teacher knows, like, you know, praise and reward system, you know, particularly with the young ones, they love it. If you, even if you just write a name of a board, you sweet or whatever, they, they love it. Things, little different activities, like if you make it student teaching, if you've got a, someone that's very able and you have them with a group, they can teach it to each other. Um, but it's them taking the ownership of what they need to know and sort of just giving them the tools to find it. And then they go and find it. You still, you have to try and steer in the right direction. Cause obviously it's very easy, especially when they're that curious and that engaged, it's very easy to go off on a tangent and ultimately we've got to get to a GCSE spec, haven't we? But, um, and I've worked with that over time. I've sort of tweaked my method to try and get them back on course. But one thing I haven't had a problem with once we started feeding into the learner identity and they started seeing themselves as I'm here to learn, I'm not here to be told per se. It was just a subtle difference. Suddenly me keeping them engaged wasn't an issue anymore. They, if anything, it was trying to, to rein it in sometimes if they'd go off on a tangent or sometimes, you know, I had, I've got one very able child in my, in my year seven who asked me the other day about black holes. And I was like, well, you know, that, that's, that's great. And I spoke to him about it for a while. Um, and that is how we focus on trying to develop it. It's just very simple little things. But once the shift happened in my head of they're going to take the onus on it and I'm just going to help them and coach them through it, suddenly that reflected in, in the class. Brilliant. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Black, black holes. That's, uh, yeah, definitely <laughs> slightly, uh, jumping the head of himself there perhaps, but, uh, yeah, exciting stuff. Um, so are there, um, are there ways that you're able to sort of bring particular groups of students into engaging them in lessons, perhaps like sort of slightly harder to reach students? Is that, is, is yeah. the curriculum giving you the power to do that? Yes. So again, it kind of comes back to us, I like a start record, but the flexibility and something I've been trialing recently, and we've been trialing as a school in different subjects is the use of, um, oracy and getting the spoken word and having them articulate what they're learning. And one thing that I've tried and seems to be going with great success is the use of debates. There is a wealth of scientific issues. I mean, we've just come out of the pandemic, you know, all these things. And using the debates is one example I found where even those who are previously very disengaged, if I talk about climate change, everyone's got an opinion on climate change. Um, and suddenly, even if, especially if you frame it in a slightly, um, I wouldn't, not controversial, but argumentative way. So I might say something, I'll start a lesson and say, do you know what? We should ban all planes. 
and suddenly everyone in the room has to either argue with me or agree with me. And they, they sort of do it themselves. Um, and that's what I mean about just leading them. And then you give them the resources they need, the debates, the research. Sometimes, you know, I've even done this at upper school, like sixth form, where they do their own research and they have to, things like that, preparing them. But they're a bit more for preparing from university. But at the lower end, that's something that's been really good. Because again, it promotes everything I've talked about, about the, the research they have to take ownership of their own learning because they're going to use it to argue against someone. And that's, it's quite, it, it really was like a, almost a silver bullet. Suddenly they, they loved it. Brilliant. Okay. So you, you talked about, um, there's quite a lot of sort of flexibility there. Um, I guess one of the things that's, um, quite apparent at the moment is the lack of specialist science teachers. And there's, there's quite a lot of non-specialists teaching science just because yeah. of the shortages. Is there enough structure in it that, for example, a non-specialist could come in and still get to grips with it without being intimidated? Do you think? I think so. So it's interesting you say that because I, I'm a non-specialist. Um, so it's interesting because, um, I don't have a science degree. I have a psychology degree. Um, and so when I came into learning science, it, it was an element of like, yeah, I'm to learn things like you say, and we have a non-specialist here who as a key stage free lead, I have to build those resources for and help through because it's, it can be intimidating. You know, if you throw me into a high tier chemistry lesson, I'm still like, I have to learn it. And, you know, and one thing I have found with this is because I think when you make the switch over to them improving their learner identity and promoting it and they have to take the ownership for their own learning. It's almost like you do less. You don't have to be a fountain of knowledge for them. Um, you, it is just a case of here's some stuff, here's the resources you need. And then you become, I, I guess an orc you orchestrate it. Your conductor, um, is the best analogy I've heard. And you just, you know, if they don't, if you don't know the answer, or they don't know the answer, you promote them to go and find it themselves just for your use of language, the resource you've got, which again, OUP has provided us with lots of good stuff and then when i've looked on online other resources it there's a lot of stuff out there um so truth be told being a non-subject specialist i yeah i don't think it has really had a massive impact i think there's a lot to gain from that and do you know what? even for subject specialists forcing you to do it i mean i've been a science teacher for about five years now and forcing you to get into a position where you have to rethink what you're doing um actually for subject specialists and not just subject specialists it's been a real it's kind of like a cpd almost to force me to be a different, better kind of teacher. So I'm just thinking about the sort of progression through, through this, uh, this, this, the science curriculum here and coming in, I guess, to start with coming in at year seven from, um, from a primary school and walking into that science lab for the first yeah. time, seeing, you know, all that equipment yeah. for someone with no sort of prior knowledge to, to that. It might be quite an intimidating space. Um, is it, are there ways you can sort of make more uh, less engaged learners feel more comfortable in that sort of space through the curriculum, through the lessons? Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, one thing I I find when they come in from year six is they're almost in awe of the science lab, and we always have. You know, every secondary school I've worked at has always had, you have the introduction to science, you know, here's a beaker, here's a Bunsen burner, all the basics that probably every science teacher would recognize. Um, but one thing they all, they really want to do practicals. They, it's something, something they don't experience as much in primary school. I feel, I mean, like I've, I've not been to primary school see but when they come to us, I get the impression they just want, they love practicals and that's that again, it comes back to curiosity. Now, what's great is when they come in at year seven. They're still very, 
Yeah, curious. Like they, they've still got quite a passion for science, more so than as they get older and they, it almost becomes routine with some of the quite practicals and things. So it is, whilst it is, it can be intimidating. I've actually personally found the opposite that they really enjoy it and they really want to be doing the practicals. They want to be using the equipment. Um, and particularly you're always going to use the equipment with, with groups as well. And if you've got a team of four of you using it, it's a bit different to a team of one of you using it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then moving sort of quick, quickly forward, are you able to see, um, or are you able to give these students kind of an idea of what perhaps a career in science might look like? Cause we talked about, you know, how abstract things like chemistry can be, how are you able to sort of give people in secondary classes for the first time, a sense of, wow, this might take me here. I might use these yeah. skills there. Is that, is that what you're able to do with this curriculum? And yeah. And truth be told, it's just a matter of, so with the approach that I've taken using this, with me doing a bit less and putting it on them, it leaves space for, while I'm not sort of the front talking lecturing, it leaves space for me to talk to them. And funny enough, there's like some of the kids will talk about, you know, their careers and their prospects. And some of them, it's, it's strange, some of them from year seven just know instantly I'm going to be a vet. Others, um, like myself, I didn't know um, in year seven what I was going to do. I didn't know I was going to be a teacher. You know, they, they don't know, but they start talking to you about it. And particularly when you start making it relevant to them, when you start talking about issues in the news, you know, since the pandemic, me teaching virology has become a completely different thing because suddenly it's real, it's engaging. And they, when we talk about careers with them, it's just about listening to what they say. And because we're cultivating a love for the subject through this approach, they, they want to be doing science. They want to be talking about, okay, what's next? What's, where am I going with this? And I've certainly noticed a lot more of those conversations popping up about, you know, do I want to be an engineer or a physicist, whatever it might be. Um, it's probably a little bit biased cause I am a physics teacher. So they, I probably get more engineers and, and space related questions. Um, but even in previous years, you know, we've run chips to CERN, for example, we have STEM careers. Um, and one thing I think we've done that's quite good, actually, we've started promoting quite heavily, you know, girls in STEM. Um, so for example, my classroom and other classrooms are covered in, you know, famous female scientists just to promote that as well and to give that exposure to show that in what is, I think can quite often be, particularly in physics, can be quite a male dominated industry. Actually there's, you know, you can easily be and succeed and thrive as a female in that. And that's something that we've, we're starting to cultivate and build momentum with as well. Brilliant. Um, so you, yeah, it sounds like you're starting to see some real, um, some real progress there. Is it, um, is it too early to sort of measure any results? Are you starting to get a sense of, um, how this is having an impact? Yeah, I think so. So we run, um, half termly assessments and what I've seen is they are progressively getting better. Now, ultimately, I think, I mean, maybe this is, this is personal opinion. Maybe someone might screw me. I think for a lot of it to see the real impact, you want to see the results over five years. So from year seven up to GCSE, um, and take a full cohort through to really get any idea. Um, but anecdotally, when I see things like, you know, they're in class assessments, when I'm talking to them. They're able to verbalize more. Um, even they like all the little things teachers do. Like when you look, when you go around a classroom and you can see the books, for example, when you're marking books, these are all things that, yeah, I've, I've seen a development in, and even from those who were previously quite disengaged in science, previously those that didn't necessarily have the skills when they were coming in. So we talked about math skills earlier, for example, um, and comparatively to 
previous year sevens, they do seem to be getting better under this under this scheme. They do seem to be um, getting further. And I think a lot of that comes down to actually they're enjoying the subject um, and they want to do it. They're engaged. They look forward to the lessons and they want to be there. Yeah, it goes goes a long way, doesn't it? Brilliant. Okay, well we'll have to uh, we'll have to revisit this when you've um, taken them all the way through to GCSE. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Martin, thank you very much for your time today. It's really good speaking to you. Thank you very much, Simon.